Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is Dr. Anna Kay. Anna is an historian, curator and broadcaster, and she has very kindly agreed to come on the show to talk about her latest book, The Restless Republic. And this is a book all about the period, I guess about a decade or so, from 1649, when Britain executed its king and tried government without a monarch. So welcome, Anna, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You must have been really pleased with how The Restless Republic was received in the press, because I, I was looking at some of the reviews, and I don't think I've seen so many five-star reviews in all my life. Oh, that's a very nice thing to say. Um, yes, I was delighted. It's a terrible thing when you write a book, because you spend years and years at your desk and inside your head and inside your computer doing something. And you know, you don't have any sense, really, of what people are going to make of it. And when you know a review is coming out, I knew there was a review coming out in the Sunday Times, and I just had terrible dreams all night <laughs> about it, <laughs> saying that it was a disaster. So, you know, it's someone, um, you know, you don't, you don't know what to expect. So, yes, I was really, really chuffed. And maybe before we get into it too much, is it worth, uh, I'd say for our American listeners, but, you know, maybe for some of our British listeners too, Uh, Is it worth sort of trying to sketch out at a very high level the the events around which your book is based? And I guess what I mean is that from sort of from the closing days of the Civil War up to the end of the Republic, just so people so we can locate, you know, the people that you talk about within that period. Well, so my book is about a period that's sometimes called the interregnum, which is a sort of kind of rather a clunky word, but it describes the period which lasted 11 years the only periods really um, in British history in the last 2000 years when there hasn't been um, a king. And so it, it covers the, the time from um, the execution of Charles I. So at the end of the Civil War, um, Charles I was executed and it, it takes us through the 11 years that followed, which in which Britain kind of tried to navigate, if you like, what a world without a king might be like in all sorts of different ways. Um, not least in working out what a new constitutional arrangement might be and getting it to stick, which proved to be very difficult, in trying to determine whether or not this was just England acting or whether this was about the, the nations of the um, British Isles and in trying to, to to sort of come up with a new set of institutions, if you like, for a world without monarchy, a world without an episcopacy, so the bishops and the traditional structure of the Church, the Church of England was done away with. And it's about what that was like. And that takes us really uh, through most of a decade and the ups and downs of of that whole, I suppose you might call it an experiment, um, and to the question as to why it didn't stick and and what made it unravel as it did, um, ending with the restoration of the monarchy, the invitation extended to Charles II to come back and take the throne in 1660. Mm. And where does Britain get the idea to be a republic because after the I, I suppose the Italian states they're republics but generally being a republic that's quite an innovation isn't it at the time yes it was it was an innovation and it wasn't it wasn't um a straightforward goal I mean during the course of the civil war so the civil war is that happens in the 10 years before the republic and during the civil war famously fought between the cavaliers and the roundheads or the royalists and the parliamentarians it's sometimes called wasn't a fight about whether or not to have a king. I mean, the the people who were fighting um, for the the royalists were very keen to have the monarchy as it had been. The parliamentarians wanted to make some changes to it, but nobody in the serious sort of 
thick of things was arguing that there should be a republic. I mean, it was the most amazingly radical thing that happened, much beyond the expectation of anybody involved in the Civil War, bar a handful of, of key players. So the first thing to say, as I say, is, is that it was it came about um, not 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 by chance, I wouldn't say, but it, it was it would have surprised absolutely everybody if you told them a year before that there was going to be a republic uh, a year later. Um, in terms of um, comparators, I mean, as you say, it was obviously long before the French Revolution or you know other revolutions that we might think of across Europe. So the, most places were monarchies, but not all places. As you say, Venice had been a long tradition of republicanism. Everybody's history was classical history, so everybody knew about the Roman Republic. This is a famous touch point. But more, more recently and more specifically in what we would now call the Netherlands in, in what was then called the Dutch Republic, um, right. there had been a um, sort of throwing off of monarchy a couple of generations before through what was called the Dutch Revolt against the Habsburg monarchy. So there was actually, very interestingly, a, a an example, I suppose, of what not having a monarchy might look a bit like, very close at hand, in a nation very much admired, really, in England uh, in particular, uh, and in Scotland, because it was a Protestant nation. It was a nation that had chosen Protestantism alongside choosing not to have a monarchy. So there were examples around, but I mean, all of which is in a way, neither here nor there, because it was when Charles I was executed, a decision had not been made about whether this was the end of just one one sort of you know wayward king um, and that one of his sons would succeed him or whether this was a change in, in the nature of monarchy or the end of monarchy altogether. And that's, you know, that, that was part of what quickly unfolded after the execution. And it did seem, reading your book, I mean, this wasn't the main focus of the book, but you seem to have quite a low opinion of Charles's abilities as a negotiator, as a politician, as a man understanding the realities around him. Yes, yes. I mean, I think there was lots to admire about Charles I as a, a private individual, his love of his children, his wonderful artistic judgment, all sorts of things. But he was not a successful king. I mean, <laughs> self-evidently, <laughs> look at how it came, what, you know, how things ended. And I think a um, somebody in that role, like his father, James I, who was a wily operator, could see that for all the talk of you being God's anointed, actually the way you succeeded and got things done were, was by negotiation, by kind of politicking, by compromise, all these things. And Charles I was no good at that. And he felt very much as if any challenge to his authority was a kind of a front on a sort of you know massive scale. And that people feeling differently about things like, for example, religion to him was because they were questioning whether he should, you know, whether or not he was their king, as he put it. So he was prickly and imperious and arrogant and lots of things, which which did mean, I think, that a lot that befell him was ultimately um, not, if not quite of his own making. It was something that he 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 could have seen off on about you know umpteen different occasions had he had he been a different sort of a man. And it was quite striking to me. Women played quite an important role in in many many different ways. And there's one woman at the trial who is is it Lady Fairfax? Um, do we think she was really there and that she really spoke up against it? Yeah, so this is this famous episode when during the course of the trial of Charles I, uh, one of the 
the, the first name on the list of those who were to sit in judgment on him, which is a sort of list of the great and the good of the parliamentarian side, was Thomas Fairfax, who'd been the um, sort of founding uh, general of the New Model Army, head of the parliamentarian army. Uh, and he, ha he had not turned up because he was very uncomfortable about the whole business of putting Charles I on trial. But up in the gallery, it's, I mean, they're good contemporary accounts of this, so we have no reason to doubt it. His wife was among the crowds. And at the point when the when John Bradshaw, who was overseeing the trial, read out the wording along the lines of, you're being tried in the name of the people of England. Um, the, her voice rang out saying, it's not in the name of the people of England, not even a quarter of them. And, uh, and there was another intervention that she made. And I mean, it's entirely consistent with her character and um, their ambivalence. And well, more than ambivalence, their, their deep discomfort about the fact that what it, uh, they, like a lot of people who'd been fighting for the parliamentarian cause, thought was to do with restraining Charles I's sort of appetite for extending monarchy and doing things that they disapproved of in terms of the church was, um, you know, that that's what they were there for, not to execute him. So, yeah, it was a pretty dramatic moment. And she's been you know, one of a, bit, a large number of very interesting, very formidable women who, who kind of play a part in my book and in the period. Um, who are very, often very little spoken about, really, in a period that's often talked about in terms of kind of fighting and war and politicking. Well, if you're going to talk about if you're going to talk about fighting and war, there was the uh, was it the Countess of Derby? She seems to have been more warlike than just about anyone that I heard of in the war. She never seemed to know what quite when to give up. Yes, so I mean, as is the you know, it's a, it's a sort of time honoured um, characteristic of periods of of war that women you know the nature of the role of women changes and you know the, the you know, first world war famously and the, you know second world war too you know that the, the the necessity changes the kind of conventions around um, what women are allowed to do so uh, charlotte Countess of derby is one so the the book is written through using a series of contemporaries the kind of contemporaries as the vantage point on 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 the decade and one of them and I wanted to reflect what, you know, some real died in the wool royalists felt about all of this. And there was no one more died in the wool than Charlotte Countess of Derby, who was, a, who was the wife of the Earl of Derby. She was a French woman, very, very, very blue-blooded, aristocratic French woman by birth. And she, um, she was kind of raised on the, the European wars of religion and the kind of great sense that fighting for, for, your, for religious right was the, the greatest fight to be fought. And she incredibly bravely... Uh, on well, two famous occasions: one at the siege of her house in Lancashire at the end of the Civil War, and once in holding um, till the bitter end the Isle of Man in the early 1650s. But the first siege, Fairfax was at that siege as well, wasn't he? It's like all these—I mean, it's quite a small world. All these characters sort of intersect and come in again and out again, and and she seems to have been both um, tremendously ferocious, but also willing to use her. Her privileges as a woman is that is that fair to say? Uh, use whatever tool she had at her disposal. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> everyone was fighting for survival. So, and you know, in her case, you know, her husband was executed. I mean, you know, and the, these, you know, the thing is, these are real, were real people. You know, they're not sort of characters in a story. They are they. These were real people living real lives. And you can imagine if your husband, your wife, your most beloved person, and she was devoted to her husband, was was um, 
you know, put on triathlon, you know, you weren't going to be worrying too much about the niceties of what what um, what strings you pulled to try and save him and try and fight your corner. So, so I mean, she was tough as old boots and brutal in lots of ways. But I think I think you can really understand this kind of complete determination to to fight for fight for the things that that, that matter to you. And that's kind of partly that's what I wanted the book to be all about. Really, was I just think too often accounts of periods of conflict in history, or in something like in this case, our Republican period, comes to be it. You could get straight to also who was right and who was wrong. You know, who were the goodies, mm. who were the baddies. You know, was it are you? You know, and people have written about this period tend to either be, as it were, historians of the left writing, you know, about sort of heroic pioneers of progressive social justice or conservative historians about sort of brutal destruction of the Puritans. And of course, the point this is kind of a totally pointless way to look at it, because these are all just human beings in a point in the past, very different to where we are now, trying to respond to circumstances or to steer circumstances in a way that they thought was right and, and better. Mm. So someone like Countess of Derby, um, to see her in action, standing alone, holding the Isle of Man, the last bit of, of, of the British Isles to be reconquered or be conquered by the parliamentarians for all that she was a bit of a monster i mean you when you see it from her point of view you really admire yeah. her and yeah. I, I yeah no totally to totally admirable it's a great story so you just want to just tell briefly the story of the the isle of man because it completely uh, astonished me because the war was kind of over at that stage yes so charles i was executed in 1649 but that at that point england had been as it were the war had been won in England, the parliamentarians had won, but Scotland and Ireland um, were still not in control of the parliamentarian government in London. So over the course of the next sort of three years, there were a series of very violent campaigns, famously that led by Oliver Cromwell in Ireland, but also in Scotland and in the islands in between to, to kind of assert the control of the um, Republican government. And one by one they fall, but um, the last... The last pieces to fall into, you know, fall to the to the Puritans, to the to the um, Republicans. Almost the very last piece is the Isle of Man, and that was part of that belonged to the Stanley family from time immemorials of feudal bit of their domain, and um, they had retreated there or when England had been lost to the Royalists, and the kind of tiny little micro kingdom, royal kingdom, was being run there by the Derbys, by the other Countess of Derby, and lots of royalists on the run came and kind of hold up there. So the island was completely sort of overflowing with royalists. And they had a kind of rather amazing little kind of shadow court there, and little masks were performed in in um, the Castle Russian in, in, on the island. And then when Charles II invaded, inverted commas, landed in Scotland to try and retake the kingdom, which culminated in this battle at Worcester, the, the Battle of Worcester, after which he famously went on the run and hid up the oak tree, as we all know. The Isle of Derby was was with him on that campaign and his wife was left holding the Isle of Man and she didn't know what had happened. She was waiting and waiting for news. And um, anyway, I, I, I let people read it, but it's a, it's a gripping mm. story of her, her holding out, her trying to negotiate for his life, for the, the safe passage of their family and has an amazing sort of epilogue to it relating to Thomas Fairfax, the head of the New Model Army, who she had previously faced over the ramparts on a previous campaign. Um, so, it's, you know, and I want, really wanted with the book it not all to be about men. <laughs> I wanted it not to be all about men. I wanted it not to be all about um, sort of noblemen and people of a kind of, you know, the, the sort of social status we tend to hear about. I mean, often because the records survive for them, but to try 
hard to understand what it was like for a, a range of different people. Right. Uh, but I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I don't think it's like, oh, here's some women sort of shoehorned in. These were formidable and important players. I mean, these were maybe these stories are not told very often, but they're but they're fantastic stories mm-hmm. and well worth and well worth telling. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are indeed. Um, there was a character in your book which I thought couldn't have been much less like your character, uh, the Countess of Derby, which was have I got his name right? Marchamant Nedham. Yes, or Needham. I, 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 I tend to call him Needham, but I think it's one of those names that you can do either way. So he he isn't sort of fighting for the one true cause. He's sort of well, do you want to explain what his political philosophy is and and what and and what and what's his profession? Yeah, so Marchmont Needham was a novelty because he had a he he was kind of in a profession which actually just did not exist a generation before or ever before, which was that he was a journalist and he was a newspaper man. Because one of the fascinating things about this whole period one of the things I think is very interesting in terms of contemporary parallels is how the kind of advent of a whole new medium of communication, in this case newspapers, became a huge kind of force in in political and social change because suddenly people are reading about what's going on and you, you're getting an up-to-date, you know, account of affairs at home and abroad. And Marchmont Needham was a newspaper editor, one of the very first. And he, like most people, didn't as it were, espouse a side within the civil war, other than for professional reasons. You know, most people want to keep their heads down. Most people didn't want to have to risk their lives and all their possessions in a fight about things that, for the most part, they were not thinking about because they you know, had their bills to pay and their crops to cut and so on. Um, but Marchman Needham saw the civil war and the republic as a brilliant opportunity to, to, turn, a, to turn a profit. So he started off as a as the editor of a parliamentarian newspaper, and then just at the moment when Parliament was about <laughs> to start winning the Civil War, he made the catastrophic decision to switch sides, which he did a number of times, to become a royalist newspaper publisher. And that's what he was doing at the um, point when Charles I was executed, doing kind of more or less in hiding, actually, because you can imagine publishing a royalist newspaper in the early uh, months of the New Republic was... Um, to put yourself in some danger, but he would, he he then managed to um, persuade the the Republican government um, who had who, who clapped him in prison that they should release him and employ him instead. How does he manage to do that? Because that seems it seems he must have had some charm or some. Pers- I mean, he he had been a real thorn in their side. I just wonder why how he managed it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, yes, as you say, he had been a thorn in their side. And through the early months of 1649, he was managing to get out a weekly paper. There were weekly publications rather than daily at this point, which, you know, didn't didn't muck about. I mean, it was full of descriptions of, you know, John Bradshaw, who tried the king as a dirty upstart and a traitor, and Oliver Cromwell as a town bull of Ely, whose face looked like maggots had eaten his nose. And he was kind of, you know, it was really, you know, it's very almost kind of tabloid stuff, if you like. But it was it was really popular and it was read by loads and loads of people. And when in the, towards the end of that first year of the New Republic, the, the people in charge, you know, really recognised that they were very, very unpopular. And this is a problem. I mean, they were unpopular to begin with because the execution of Charles I had been a kind of radical thing that came about because of the intervention of the army. It wasn't the sort of general mood of the mood of the nation. 
however fed up people were with him. But also it was a problem because the campaigns to reconquer Scotland or conquer Scotland and Ireland were were brutal, particularly Ireland. And people were shocked at the time. Well, it isn't just, you know, with hindsight that we're shocked about that. They were shocked at the time. So they knew, the, the Republicans knew they needed to do something to try and kind of, you know, in, our, in sort of more modern kind of political cliche, win hearts and minds. And John Branch, I mean, and uh, Mark McNeedham knew his own worth. So he wrote to them and said, you need me. This is what I can do for you. And interestingly, that his his um, his sort of back issues or the, his output, as it were, was referred to great literary figure John Milton to have a look at to see whether they ought to to you know take him up on this. And you know you think that John Milton, you know, who's the sort of writer of the most kind of amazing, searing, soaring, fabulous sort of ideologically kind of driven prose of all time, might have looked at Marchmont Needham and thought, forget it. But actually, he recognised that actually what Marchmont Needham could do was something that Milton and Co couldn't even begin to do, which was to to, to cast things in the language and with a humour and with a kind of rakish, sort of um, impish joyfulness that was going to really make people want to read it and kind of um, capture their imaginations. And actually, so they agreed. And actually, interestingly, uh, Marchmont Needham and John Milton became great, great friends, even though Marchmont Needham had been a turncoat and, and was a sort of gutter, well, not quite gutter, but, you know, a sort of, quite sort of lowbrow publisher and um, John Milton was this searing literary genius but you know they're human beings yes it is amazing I mean I sort of imagine Milton Holmes as living in a bubble but then you realize no they lived in their times they lived you know in society they were they were part of what, what was going on at the time yeah it sort of was a bit of it was a bit of a shock to me that and also that Marchmont Needham he managed Marchmont Needham he manages to um he manages to make best friends with um bradshaw i know the most unlikely trio. <laughs> yeah, but i think john i think uh, much magnesium is i always think that many of us have one or two slightly unacceptable friends you know which you think <laughs> oh i don't know you know we i shouldn't we, we shouldn't be friends because we disagree on everything but actually we have you know this person makes me laugh or you know whatever it is you have history together and you just think you know that's that's that's, that's great him. and i think that it's a, again it's a real reminder which i just found all the way through when I was writing this book of how you at your peril can patronize the past by assuming that somehow people aren't as complicated as they are today or or as ambiguous or as you know simultaneously um, idealistic and and cynical or whatever the, the cocktail of things are and I love discovering that about the past because it just makes it makes it to me much more immediate um, and interesting. One of the things that I thought was very interesting about Needham was that he had he had a problem when he switched sides, which which he did several times. Mm. But his, if I understand it, his basic philosophy was: it's your duty to support the people in power. Anything else is destructive. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like about Marchmont Needham is he doesn't he doesn't kind of pretend that he hasn't changed sides. Or trying to, I mean, he does a little bit dress it up, but in quite a sort of pragmatic way, he sort of says, "Well, there's absolutely no point." in taking issue if somebody else is, you know, if, if somebody mightier than you has sort of marched in and taken over um, and you think it's wrong. Because if they're in charge, you know, they're in charge and all you're going to do is find that you lose your livelihood and you're part of kind of chaos and disorder and that's not going to help anybody. So you should just, the people would say, oh, well, you know, this is, you know, it's been a terrible, awful coup, totally 
um, you know, constitutionally, um, you know, insupportable and so on, all of which was true. But Marchmont needed to be said, well, you know, look in the history books. You know, people, kings in the past were always invading and, you know, knocking the, the weaker one out of the way. And why is that any different? Which is, he's got a point. So um, I, I, I liked, I like, I think it kind of gives you a sense of what he was like, that just kind of, yeah, well, you know, that's how it is. So, you know. Let's get on. Let's go and have another drink. You know, which he was a great sort of boozer <laughs> and a storyteller and a raconteur and a liver in the moment. So, yeah, he's a, he, to me, he's a wonderful tonic to the sort of caricatures about this period being kind of bleak and joyless. And the fact that his two drinking partners are John Milton and John Bradshaw, <laughs> even more so the man who tried the king and the author of Paradise Lost. And there they all are cracking open another bottle of Madeira. The contrast with uh, with the Countess couldn't be any greater, really. Mm. She's she's quite prepared to to fight to the last man to risk the death of her husband and to risk her own life yes. you know, in in something that she believes in. It's uh, whereas Needham is just hey, let's get on with the world as it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You kind of made the point. You know, don't assume that that people in the past are are simpler than we are. And there was one character that you uncovered uh, a guy called William Petty. And uh, I was very struck by him because, again, he's living at this remarkable time. He's just a young man. He's got this incredible intellect, at least so it seems. He's certainly got this incredible memory. Do you want to say a bit about his early life and how he sort of came to to prominence? Yeah, so William Petty is fascinating because he was the son of a very poor family of people in the cloth industry, um, lived near the south coast of England and grew up in, in a sort of very modest background. He wasn't university educated like various of the other people that I talk about in the book. And but, but, you know, so like Oliver Cromwell, he grew up in great comfort, of, you know, family with aristocratic background and money and so on. It's completely different. William Petty's right down the bottom of the scale. But what he grew up with was an amazing brain, extraordinary, extraordinary brain. And he had this, He's very interesting because because the Civil War, as well as bringing lots of um, you know death and destruction and disease and demolition of buildings and so on, also was an amazing offer of opportunities. Again, it's, it's, this is a you see this in war um, in other time periods. So for for William Petty, he was um, he was sent off to be a uh, to be an apprentice to apprentice on a, as a as a seaman on a on a merchant vessel, and um, he broke his leg on uh, the, when he fell off the rigging and the, his crew members who couldn't bear him anyway because he was too clever by half and he's only maybe 12 or 13 at this point put him ashore in northern france and sort of abandoned him there and he manages to make his way through um through kind of performing tricks and um mem- feats of memory because he could remember any sequence of numbers you could tell him 50 numbers in any order and he could recite them right back to you he's one of these people who could kind of memorize the telephone book you know incredible brain he manages to get himself to um to the university at Caen, which is a Jesuit university, it's a Catholic university in Caen, and they and he tells them, "You've got to take me. You know, I'm a, I've, I, I can. I, there's nothing I can't get my head around." And they and and they won over by him. So he gets taken in and gets given this amazing education, and he comes out as he says, better educated than anyone in Europe, more or less. And he gets himself to Paris, where he meets Thomas Hobbes and various people. And anyway, to cut a long story short, he ends up in Oxford where he does a, a doctorate um, and anatomy comes to be his um, big sort of area specialism, but he's a mathematician as well. And what happened at the end of the Civil War was there was a, um, the beginning of the Republic, there was a, a kind of undertaking, a kind of pledge, an oath you had to swear if you were um, an adult man to say that you you signed up to the to the regime without a king. 
And um, lots of people signed it, but some people didn't. And in Oxford, lots of people didn't because it was a royalist town. Right. So the university kind of, you know, the big wigs of the university all refused to sign it. So suddenly all these young people who were just doing their doctorates, who were, you know, in their late teens or early 20s, get promoted into these very senior roles very quickly. Happens to Petty. He becomes a professor, you know, age whatever he was, 22 or something. And he and he starts, so suddenly there's this sort of whole generation of young Turks. And this is at a crucial point when the new science is coming to the fore. So this is really the critical moment post Copernicus and Galileo, where the kind of old Greek and Roman understanding of the world, where there were three continents and the sun went around the earth and so on, was was being upended because we discovered there was another continent that no one had noticed called America or which was you know, known as and um, the, the development of lenses and various things were allowing telescopes and microscopes and things to be made which was revealing loads of things about ancient scientific understanding to be wrong and so there was a whole generation of people who were sort of fizzing with the excitement of this William Harvey who is a who was a an Ox, also an Oxford uh, doctor had had come up this theory that the blood actually circulated around your body it didn't just go out from your heart and sort of disappear it actually came back around and this was you know radical radical thing so William Petty and his young men colleagues promoted given amazing opportunities by this new seniority and they form a society which they call the Oxford Experimental Philosophy Society it meets in William Petty's rooms every week and they experiment which was not the way that you did science the way you did science historically was to look at what other people had said what Aristotle had said or somebody else 2000 years ago instead they were you know they had all sorts of interesting ingredients and they made notes of their experiments and their methods and their results and so on and out of this would come the great kind of scientific revolution of the 17th century which and they would rename themselves the royal society at the restoration in order to sort of you know <laughs> uh, make sure that you know they were sort of seen as being on the side of the of the victors but petty had this rather extraordinary kind of um, other canvas on which he he his sort of great undertaking would be sort of drawn out, which was that he, he, went to, he was recruited to go to Ireland as the doctor to the um, Republican governor of Ireland, the Lord Deputy. And why does he have such a great fame as a doctor? What has he done that has made people believe that he's just the man <laughs> when so, you're feeling a bit yes. sick? <laughs> well, he had a kind of, he, he, he became a kind of quite a household name, but certainly a sort of widely known figure because he and one of his colleagues in the Experimental Philosophy Club used to go and collect the um, corpses from the from Oxford Castle when they were what were people were executed for various crimes in order to have some some bodies to work on you know to see what did happen to the blood and you know so on um, and on one occasion they went and got the corpse of a young woman who'd been hung for um, murder and um, they took her back to their rooms and they were just just sort of about to sink their scalpels into her when they realised that she wasn't dead quite. And over the course of the next few days with careful ministrations and all sorts of acts, they managed to resuscitate her. And eventually she sort of walked out of their lodgings, you know, in, in fine health. And the the story that they had brought her back from the dead, because she had been hung and had dangled from the rope, you know, for you know quite a long time and then been stamped on and declared dead and been carried off. So... It was a pretty sensational thing, um, and so the, his celebrity is that you know he can he, he can really bring you back to life if you're dead. Went far and wide, and if you were somebody a bit worried about your um, your own personal health, and you were going somewhere in Ireland, which was famous for for all sorts of 
horrible things happening to people that um, did finish them off. He was the person he wanted to take with you. So he, he was given a job. He bowed out of Oxford to do this very lucrative job to go and be physician to to the chap who was the, the, the sort of Cromwellian nominee who was put in charge of Ireland. What happens to the girl that they uh, resurrected? Oh, well, so she was, she was a, um, a servant who had clearly been horribly maligned by being accused of having murdered somebody. Actually, what had happened was that she'd had a stillborn child after being seduced by the son of the person she worked for. And so as well as them, the, the um, Oxford scientist Petty and his friend physically reviving her, they also sort of led a campaign to have her, her sentence quashed. Mercurius Politicus Marchmont Needham's newspaper, who loved nothing better than a story like this, you can imagine, um, <laughs> covers this extensively. And so, um, and the fact that she'd come back to life also spooked everybody because they thought maybe this is God intervening to say that she was innocent. So anyway, so, so they got her a reprieve and then she became a kind of celebrity and would go around county fairs and things and people would go and see her and she'd tell the story. And, um, you know, as far as we know, so we lived happily ever after, which is great. But there's some happy endings. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but it was very interesting because Petty's got this incredible brain, and and he puts it in the service of well, I get a bit confused, but Henry Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell's son, he ends up in charge in Ireland, and I think he's trying to is is Henry Cromwell's aim is to try and reverse some of the some of the damage that's been done by by how the English have approached the Irish uh, situation. Yeah, so I mean, you know, famously. Um, the, the experience of, of Ireland, well, actually, one can say this about long history, but specifically talking about this, was an absolutely appalling one because um, the formulation for people in Ireland who had not been supporters of the parliamentarian army was way more punitive than was the case for any other part of England. I mean, Charlotte Countess of Derby not only supported the royalists, she personally commanded two sieges, against them and she was you know she wasn't executed or anything she was allowed to um, return home and was able eventually to pay a fine get her lands back and um, uh, and carry on Uh, if you if you'd been in Ireland the story was completely different and essentially what happened was that all of those people in Ireland who had not actively supported the parliamentarian army which is the vast majority not least because they were Catholics and the parliamentarian Mm. army was radically Puritan were subject to basically mass dispossession. The formulation, and this wasn't Cromwell's formulation, this has actually originally been Charles I's formulation, was that when Ireland was finally brought to heel, as they saw it, the soldiers who'd fought in that campaign and the London investors who'd put up the money to pay for it would be recompensed with funds which would be extracted from the defeated Irish and specifically lands that would be taken from them. So at the end of the, when the the fighting eventually ceases in around the early 1650s, the task in hand is then to to wrest from all the people who had fought fought for the royalists or not fought for parliamentarians uh, all their land and to give them instead of kind of fraction of the property that they'd had in the far west of Ireland, essentially to a kind of ethnic separation, push all the Catholics the other side of the Shannon and um, give all the kind of um, valuable land to to the um, to the English soldiers and investors in the East. So this this was the task. Henry Cromwell, who was Oliver Cromwell's second son, very able and interesting figure, was given the job in the middle of the 1650s. So after all the fighting has finished and once this process of redistribution of land had begun to, to sort of run the island of Ireland, 
And I didn't, I mean, it's not so much that he was reversing things. He wasn't in a position to reverse them. This was a plan long since set in motion. But he certainly was concerned to try to demilitarize Ireland, try and regenerate the economy, which had been absolutely ruined, to take a much more moderate line when it came to the persecution of Catholicism. And he wanted to sort of avoid implementing the strict anti-Catholic legislation and so on. So he was a kind of, he was a a kind of much more um, sort of civilian figure with much more sort of civilian outlook everything was run by the army and he was in he was interested in Ireland he was interested in reconstruction and he was interested in 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 kind of making peace and harmony where there'd been strife um so that so William Petty arrives in Ireland with this huge task of redistribution of the lands sort of just beginning to the wheels getting in motion and he um but he has this mad boast, doesn't he? I mean, I mean, somebody's already doing it, and, and he just says, uh, "Rubbish! I could do that ten times." I mean, his boast is 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 what exactly? Well, so he goes as a doctor, so he's nothing to do with the redistribution of the land just in terms of his job description. He's supposed to be there, you know, tending to the to the sick. But he looks on as the process of redistribution is beginning, and in order to begin the process of redistribution, you have to you have to have know what the lands are in order to be able to say what parcel you're taking from person. Irish person X and giving to you know English person Y. So, so a, a, a plan had been set in motion to to map Ireland. So then you could establish what the properties were, and then you could do this redistribution. And this was just beginning. And Petty was looking on, and he could see that it was going to be a disaster because there were a whole lot of professional surveyors who were sort of huffing and puffing around Dublin Castle, saying, "Oh, well, it's going to take a terribly long time because we need to have all these instruments made in England, and we can only have professional surveyors working on it, and there aren't enough." So we'll. It was clearly going to take, you know, at least a decade to even do the mapping, let alone the redistribution. Meanwhile, you had all these soldiers who you couldn't disband until you paid them. So it was kind of compounding the, the friction and so on. And he, looking on and with his amazing um, brain for kind of digesting information and tasks and so on, and also as somebody who did not come from a professional background, who came from very much a sort of on the tools kind of trade background, he could see that you could just do this completely differently. If instead of following the kind of, you know, the sort of time-honoured rules of the profession, if instead of doing any of that, you said, we've got all these soldiers. If we if we divide up the tasks of mapping and we have the right sort of oversight, we can get them to do all the legwork, which will mean we can get this task done much, much more quickly. And with his kind of totally sort of precision and very numerical brain, which could see how the trigonometry of mapping the island could be divided up into a series of tasks and so on. He said, he came forward and said, I can do this. I can do this for far less cost. And rather than it taking most of a decade, I can do it in a year. And, you know, it was just a bit too irresistible as a proposition to turn down. <laughs> Although on the face of it, here's a man who'd never made a map, never been in charge of any kind of, phys- you know, he was, he was an academic. He'd never been in charge of any kind of actual man, woman and beast sort of enterprise. Um, but he did do it. And it was, I mean, the book tells the story. I mean, it was the both how they actually physically managed it and the achievement. And the, the maps that were made, which still survive, each parish was divided up into a series of sub areas and mapped down to every field, every boundary of the whole of Ireland. This is in 1653 to 6 sort of period, was the most sophisticated um, act of kind of cartography of any, uh, well, certainly any nation in the British Isles and almost anywhere else in Europe at the time. Um, to be undertaken and um, it was a, it was extraordinary I mean it, it would be the base data that would affect this horrific dispossession of 
the Irish in favour of the the um, the English and to a lesser extent the Scots. But as a piece of as a, as an enterprise, as a piece of sort of scientific endeavour, and as a as a pioneering bit of cartography, it's absolutely breathtaking. And and William Petty was incredibly proud of it, although he was no advocate for the for the for the the thing that it was um, facilitating. I suppose the only thing that Petty might be able to say uh, that it was doing that was good was that it was dealing with the question of getting rid of the soldiers, finally demilitarizing the situation. But yes, I mean, it, it's, it's all in service of the, of, is it called the transplantation? I can't. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And also he said, you know, he felt if this thing's going to be done, it, I have no, I have no influence over that. But if it's going to be done, it might as well be done well. You know, they might as well be done fairly within the bounds that have been set for this, because actually each one of the dispossessed Irish people was to be given a parcel of land so that they should be given the right parcel of land rather than, you know, none at all uh, was was something worth pursuing. And and also, latterly, he was working for Henry Cromwell, who he really admired. And he would and they were talking about plans for founding a new university in Dublin and how they would you know revive trade and build a network of lighthouses and to protect the, protect the coastal shipping and so on. So. I think he probably saw it as part of the, the transplantation, but it's sort of something they just had to kind of get past in order to begin begin then the task of, of um, rebuilding rebuilding the, the um, island. Yeah, and then the history of Ireland and the English in Ireland is it's not a happy one, right? Really isn't. And, it, and you know, I, I do think that understanding this process, which um, I think is very little really, there's very little talked about really, which is interesting given the Cromwellian massacres or sieges at... Droida and Wexford are a lot for good reason because they were horrific, but actually they affected a very small number of people. This process of the dispossession um, and the transplantation affected everybody, and it was it, it you know Ireland had been something like three quarters owned by Irish people before the Civil War, and after it after you know, the Restoration it was the other way around. So you know that's that is a pretty major shift. Yeah, we mentioned Cromwell's role. I guess we should you know sort of the. He's the big character, and in a way, he's he he does come into the book, but he's but he's but he's not a huge person in the book. But 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 as I read it, I just I get so many different contradictory thoughts about him because he seems to be a genuinely angry and determined person. He's in charge of the army that has the massacre in Ireland, that the the Drogheda siege and 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 later massacre, but he's. He's also a kindly man. He enjoys music. He dotes on her, his not very puritanical daughter, Elizabeth. Just a mass of contradictions, this man. Can you, could you make sense of him? Well, I think the thing you have to remember about Cromwell is that he, he, is, he, is, he is a mass of contradictions, but in a way there's, a re, there's an explanation for that. So he was a son of a, a very affluent family, East Anglian family. He's a, he's a, a distant Great, great, great nephew of Thomas Cromwell, the famous Tudor um, oh, okay. uh, politician, and in fact, the money, the family money, came from him. But uh, so he grew up in his uncle was a knight, big family country house up the road. Uh, you know, he went to university. He, he loved hawking and riding, and so he was a country gent type of a guy. And what happened is that then he married, had lots of children. Um, is that he had a kind of breakdown in his thirties. Financially, they ran out of money. He sort of, he was, you know, he was obviously quite kind of had moments of being quite sort of emotionally fragile, and he had a, he had a kind of what I think we might think of now as a sort of nervous breakdown in his thirties. And he 
in the sort of depths of his despair, he had a he had a kind of religious reawakening. He had a, a an absolute sort of moment when there was darkness and then there was light. And and so what that and 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 he's you know that was God you know claiming him and a very kind of important hugely powerful moment in his life. And so what happened was and and you know this this happens quite a lot with people who were around at the time and still today who who have strong religious conviction you know sometimes it's because you're brought up with it sometimes it's because you just have a real kind of epiphany and this is what happened with Cromwell so as a consequence he was simultaneously because that didn't kind of obliterate the man who'd been before it just kind of joined with it so he was you know two halves of a whole one was quite traditional country gentleman English country gentleman and one was a sort of utterly fire in his soul you know, disciple of Christ kind of person who had been called by God to do his bidding. And so you've got these two things together. And I, I don't mean that that accounts for him doing things that are horrible and things that are kind. I just mean that he has two he has two sort of identities and that causes contradictions that I think we see, through, you know, all the way through. So, you know, something you know, when it comes to, you know, when he's, the, you know, the, the leader of the was a sort of in the he's the Lord Protector, you know, this position that's created a sort of sort of king, but not quite. He's both wanting to do what God wants him to do in terms of, you know, godly reform of England, but he also doesn't want to sort of doesn't want sort of social revolution. He doesn't want, you know, to upend the the social order because he comes from a very traditional background. And, you know, when he's has to name his successor, he know he names his oldest son. You know, so so he's he I think is very interesting for that. And I think there are there are moments, and the Irish campaigns, unquestionably in my mind, most prominent among them, where he behaves in a way that is clearly, you know, absolutely cruel and destructive and violent, um, as others did. And I, I'm afraid it's horribly characteristic of the way that English people viewed Irish people in the 17th century, which was being kind of lesser, you know, and mm. um, of much as you might some sort of subsidiary species. Um, but there are lots of other ways in which I think, given that he, he got to, you know, he came to a position of tremendous power and authority where he acts with great humility, the, the desire for there to be harmony, for peace. He doesn't self-aggrandize. He doesn't amass lots of money. He's not corrupt. You know, so there's, there's you know, he's, there are many, many sides to him. And he, he, you know, he all the time is thinking about, you know, as the, the sort of thunderbolt hit him in his moment of darkness during his breakdown. It was a promise that God was going to kind of gather him home, and and so always in his mind is the moment when he's going to be gathered home to God and making sure that God still wants him. So he's really, really driven by his sense of what does God want, and that kind of overwhelms everything else. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a in a destructive way. Yeah, so I mean that's presumably the reason why he turns down the kingship when everybody. As well, I, I think an act, is, act of Parliament actually has been passed, sort of arranging it, has it? Well, it's certainly it's certainly drawn up. Um, it doesn't pass because he won't. Ah. Just, he, it requires his assent. But um, it, it it absolutely would have done if he'd gone for it. But yes, because he's very. He feels God would look at him if he was there saying, "I'm king," and say, "Well, this is not you know this is not the kind of humility that I expect in my in people who really are my creatures." So be gone. Um, so he's very, very, very nervous of anything that sounds looks like pride, looks like self-aggrandizement, looks like nepotism, and that prevents him from from doing a number of things that actually would have made the regime much more secure, but where he sees it as kind of vainglorious. 
And that's quite interesting. I mean, people in the whole in positions of power don't go around worrying about that that much. In the mm. certainly not in the you know seventeenth, sixteenth centuries. Henry VIII didn't lie awake worrying about that terribly much. <laughs> so um, it's it's a, it's it's an interesting and different characteristic in a in a ruler. And you know, I think there are things to be admired in that. But the other thing I sort of see about Cromwell is that he he's terribly clear sighted, and he gets so frustrated when people don't share his vision and they're quibbling over points and so he's dismissing the parliament because you know they won't get on and do the business that needs to be done and he sees with great clarity what the task is and and it sort of enrages him when when other people won't get on board so you've also got that side to him you have but ultimately you've got this fundamental contradiction which is it's all very well saying we've we have got rid of monarchy because we think the people should be sovereign and their representatives in Parliament should be the sovereign body. I mean, for all that, that was a very new or quite sort of bold statement in the 17th century. You know, people at the time did get the logic of it. The point at which that completely falls down is if you don't agree with what people in Parliament have come up with. <laughs> and that's what Oliver Cromwell didn't agree with. He thought they weren't, you know, they weren't godly enough. So then it had to be the right people. And then, of course, the whole thing begins to fall apart as a concept because it's nonsense then if it's sort of you're not coming up with the right decisions and we need to have some other people. And that, and that essentially was, you know, that essentially was Cromwell's view because he really was interested in doing God's doing. He wasn't so much interested in, you know, what the people wanted. That was a kind of formulation that, that, that kind of was attempted. But fundamentally, the people who had brought it about weren't um, allowing in that formulation for the thing that many of them, Cromwell first and foremost, really cared about, which was, kind of godly way of doing things, um, which was a different thing altogether. Maybe it was a very good thing he did, which was to turn down the kingship, because at that stage you then have a Cromwell dynasty and you have a Stuart dynasty, and presumably you you could have civil war carrying on for years and years and years, whereas, as it turned out, it was a relatively simple matter. He chooses Richard as a successor, which is this bizarre idea that you have, you're, I'm not a monarch, but I have a hereditary protectorate, which I struggle with. But but it's not a king, and it doesn't have all the trappings that a king has. So the Stuarts, you feel, are always in a much, much stronger position to come back than if Cromwell had had become king. Or is, is that right? Well, I think if Cromwell had become king, um, I think the Stuarts would have been in a much le- less strong position. Yes, that's, yeah. sorry, that's, 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 what that's what I meant. Yes, I yeah. think that's right. And I think that's one of the reasons that lots of people in the kind of political sphere thought it was a good idea to do it. First of all, you know, it, it, it then just made, you know, would you prefer the Cromwells or the Stuarts? And on the whole, people weren't loving the Stuarts very much. I mean, it's pretty noticeable that there hadn't been a successful attempt for them to come and seize the throne. Um, or, you know, when Charles II tried to to um, take the country and, you know, rode down the flank of England to fight the Battle of Worcester, people weren't rushing out of their houses to join him. Quite the opposite. They were shutting the doors. So it, I think if you if, if if Cromwell had accepted the crown and, and all that came with it, then he wouldn't be choosing between two systems. You'd just be choosing between two families, in which case, you know, Cromwell's are here and, you know, um, we've all sort of made our peace one way or another. We've paid our fines or whatever. We don't want to turn that on its head. And we don't have any particular, we don't really know who the Stuarts now because Charles I dead and Charles II was a boy when he went overseas. So I think that would have made it stronger. The other thing, of course, which was said at the time, which might seem funny now to think of it this way, is that kingship had had well-established boundaries, um, hmm. you know, through historical precedent about things that you couldn't, couldn't do. You had to get Parliament's assent for various things, to raise taxes, to do various things. Whereas being a Lord Protector, 
not so much. I mean, you know, there wasn't uh, uh, nobody knows. There wasn't a kind of body of precedent there. And um, ultimately, there was a lot undefined about it. So actually, it was arguably a much more kind of potentially sort of tyrannical role than being a king was, where there was a you know this this well established sort of set of precedents about about the extent of power. So I, I think I think yes. I mean, I think I mean every you know I say everyone, but the majority of the kind of political nation, even those who had been very much been very well served by the Republican regime, wanted him to accept it because this this was going to kind of be the the sort of missing component that would cause things to stabilise. And I think that was really widely felt. And it was Cromwell's own sort of 11th hour, because he had been kind of convinced to, to sign up to it, 11th hour, great sort of gulp of doubt um, <laughs> that God would, you know, this wasn't what God was going to going to be happy about that caused him to to turn it down and you know things unraveled quite quickly thereafter they do unravel i mean he he appoints richard as his heir and richard is manifestly not up to the job but he's he's removed by is it by the army uh and so so we move away from the protectorate we're back to some sort of a purer republic is that right yeah but at that stage the generals revolt i'm i i got a bit confused towards the end well it's a very complicated picture in that last 18 months of the period so Oliver Cromwell dies in the autumn of 1658 on his deathbed you know Morris his last words are naming Richard his successor because that was the formulation it wasn't hereditary it was that he could name his successor he chose to name his oldest son I think because ultimately the traditional landowner kind of came out had he chosen Henry Cromwell I think history would be very different Who, who was up to the job um, but it's extraordinary that he didn't choose Henry because Henry had actually done stuff, and Richard hadn't. And and you just wonder was there was there a relationship problem between Oliver Cromwell and his son that that that, that caused him to pass him over? It, it seems it seems curious, doesn't it? But I think you I think it's easy to underestimate the strength of the hereditary or not hereditary the sort of primogeniture tradition when everything had been about the eldest son and this is the right order of things, this is the kind of correct and proper way. I think to push aside your oldest son in favour of your second son was sort of, was was kind of, was sort of horrible to, to a 17th century mind in terms of the way that things should be. Anyway, we don't know, of course, that's that he, he did. And um, Richard, who was, you know, hadn't been a soldier, hadn't been running some kind of province or anything, had been you know, riding in nice horse races and, you know, drinking wine in the, in the countryside was was you know, given an impossible task. And so six months later, essentially what happens is that he is he is removed by a kind of axis between the army and between the um, between the the MPs of the old Rump Parliament, the original Parliament of the Republic, and it's particularly shocking because it's not just that it's those two forces ganging together to kind of get rid of the the role of the Lord Protector, which had been around since the mid sixteen fifties, but it's also that these people are his relations. I mean, you know, hmm. he has two uncles who are the senior members of the army, and you know they basically force him out, and you know he's utterly broken by it. And then, the, and then, so that holds for about six months, which is essentially a return to the to the what we call the Commonwealth, the kind of purer. There is no, there is no individual uh, man at the top. It's just the, the House of Commons. But then the army and the House of Commons fall out. So then the, House, the army march the House of Commons out of the chamber, and it's just chaos. And this is the point at which George Monk, the general in charge of Scotland for the Parliamentary Army, 
or the English army as it just now is, finally is persuaded to intervene um, to, 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 to restore order. And not, not to, he doesn't intervene to effect the restoration of the monarchy. He intervenes to allow Parliament to meet without the army standing on the door and saying who can come in and who can't. But in so doing, a much more truly representative group of people are allowed to meet and they vote as they almost always would have done uh, for the restoration of the monarchy. Yeah, it's quite interesting that, uh, well, Monk, Monk's a very interesting character in a number of ways, not least that he seems to have married his wife bigamously, you say. Yeah. Uh, and, and she seems to have been quite a powerful force in, in deciding what their plan of action is going to be and to sort of tip him into, into making the, the march south. Yeah, because Monk is a, you know, Monk's a sort of gruff, um, slightly taciturn soldier. He says, you know, I'm a, I know about soldiering. I'm not a politician. You know, in my in my time, you know, soldiers followed orders, and it was the politicians who sort of decided who was in charge. We did what we were told. So he's he's kind of kept out of all of that. But his his wife Anne, who's a most remarkable woman, fascinating figure utterly overlooked um, by history. No books ever written on her, no entries in the Dictionary of National Biography, nothing. And yet it's perfectly clear when you read the contemporary material and their chaplain wrote a very detailed history of the days that led up to the monk's decision to intervene, that it was her encouragement to say, you can't just stand on the sidelines. Look, you know, the nation is absolutely on its knees. There's complete chaos everywhere. People are being chucked out of the House of Commons, left, right and centre. There are all sorts of crazy religious radicals who are busy preaching their kind of outlandish sermons all over the place. And we, you know, all, we can't go on like this. Something has to be done. And you should, you're the one who ought to do it. You've, you're in a position to do it. And he was very keen to just pack up and go to Ireland because he was one of these soldiers who'd been given a lot of land out of the <laughs> Petty's mapping and the redistribution of lands in Ireland. And they were about to do it. They were about to go. They'd ordered the suitcases and they were packing when news came that Parliament had yet again been expelled from the chamber by the soldiers of the army. And it just, you know, something obviously snapped in him, in them. And he decided this most extraordinary, risky uh, undertaking to declare that he was for uh, Parliament being allowed to meet in the face of his brethren, the army, preventing it. And the army basically holding the reins of power. Um, And fascinatingly, he makes contact with Thomas Fairfax, who we were talking about at the beginning, the man who had been the first general of the New Model Army, who had won the war for the parliamentarians, as it were, who had been living in retirement in Yorkshire. And um, Fairfax says, I'll help you. So it's, it is an amazing thing that this, this man who had been in Fairfax, who had been right at the beginning, the, 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 the great sort of leader of the New Model Army, is the one that ultimately, uh, working in concert with um, General Monk, brings the army regime to an end and in the end is the one who actually goes to to the Netherlands with the piece of paper to present to Charles II saying will you come back and be king which is amazing. I can't think of a better place to end the story than there so uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> that was great. Well that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, then I have a big favor to ask. I don't look to make any money from the podcast. There's no advertising or anything like that. I just do this because I enjoy speaking to the guests and 
you know, I'm keen for them to get as big an audience as possible because I think, you know, they are really, really good people. So if you could share it on whatever social media channel you use, tweet it out, whatever it is, and even better, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, goodbye for now. Thank you.